0: I have a recurring nightmare that uh, frustrates me. I don't know if you have uh, recurring nightmares. What I mean by that is the same nightmare that keeps coming back every once in a while. You're reliving the this, the same torturous thing and it's being given an assignment that I forgot about. And I'm going to class and I realize I'm not prepared. How many of you did not do your homework today? Let me see a show of hands. Those of you that did not do your homework. Yeah, okay, well, there we go. May the Lord give you nightmares tonight. <laughs> in 1 John uh, chapter 2, beginning with verse 15, John applies the problem of tolerating sin in one's life uh, in a very potent way. And you would think... That what he is writing is not to people living in modern or ancient Turkey uh, near Ephesus. You'd be thinking that he's writing to us in America today. Because this problem defines Americanism. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides in Forever. Did you notice that he said that we don't understand where our impulses are coming from? We may think these impulses are coming from God. And way, way too many people say, my desires must be implanted by God. So many people blame God for so many desires. For which he says, don't blame me. Look at the source. He says, you have to notice how the world has infiltrated your sense of desire. And he says, the problem is, you think you can love the world and me at the same time. Impossible. They are mutually exclusive. If you were to ask my wife if I could love her and a mistress on the side, (laughs) she would answer you very clearly, no. And God answers our question very clearly. Can I enjoy, seek after, pursue, and orient my whole life towards the priorities of the world and not have it affect my relationship with him? He's saying, how stupid could you be? It doesn't work that way. To love the world pushes out God. Love for the world would be hatred for God. And so he says, Ask yourself where your desires are coming from. Now, here's the strange thing. He uses the word lust, lust, lust. You've heard in the news lately, there's this concept coming around, alternate facts, fake news. That's exactly what he's talking about here. What we're actually experiencing is lust, but we think it is love, Because there's such a strong sense of attraction. It's not love if it's selfish. In fact, lust as an imposter love causes people to act selfishly in the name of love. How many young men, let's say teenage age or something, have told their girlfriends, I love you. When what he actually means by that without realizing it is i lust for you he thinks this animal attraction that he has for us this magnetism this drive to be with her is love he's been listening to the radio and its definitions that's not love because lust steals what does not belong to him and spends it on his own pleasures. True love is sacrifice. True love meets the other person's needs at your personal expense. And consequently, we're clueless as to what the love of God is if we think that it is an attraction That motivates us to take something from someone else. Notice what he says regarding the things that are in the world. He says, for all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. You read these business magazines, these investment magazines, and they glorify Money, power, recognition. That's Americanism. That's capitalism. That's greed, which they view as good. No, it's lust. The lust of the flesh is saying, myself, not realizing it's coming from our basis nature that has not been redeemed and is awaiting the time when we be futurely, future glorified this strong attraction is actually a selfish attraction to spend it on my own pleasures. There are things that we see with our eyes that we want and we crave. It looks good and we want it to spend it on our own pleasures. And he says, we also are focused so selfishly That we want people to admire us, want to be like us, want to follow us, and it's all about us. I'm tired of looking at my instant message stream or social media stream and just seeing selfie after selfie after selfie and looking at the way in which people pose. And what is it about getting into a car that you have to look at the mirror and take a picture of yourself in your car? I don't understand. But what it's showing is I want people to admire me. And if you look at all the comments, it, you're so beautiful. Oh, I wish I looked like you. Do you see what's happening? And then you look at any of our Facebook streams, it's the life I wish I lived to make you wish you could be me and live my life. It's not very accurate. Most of our lives aren't nearly as fun as the stuff we post on Facebook. But he is saying, these things distract us from what we really want. Truly, we need God. And to know the love of God, we have to be careful that we don't fall in love with the world system. I'd like to show you in a different passage what actual love for the Lord looks like. It's found in Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 36. And it's a story of a woman who loved God appropriately, though... As it was observed by other people at the party, very awkwardly and embarrassingly. The story in Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 36, is about Simon the Pharisee inviting Jesus for dinner. Simon doesn't have interest in what Jesus is teaching, Simon is looking for ways to discredit Jesus. But Jesus is popular, he's famous. If he had him for dinner, he could have all his important friends over for dinner. He's a collector of celebrities. He wants people to come to his house and admire him because of all people he could get, Jesus would come to dinner. This is a large house, a large table, a number of people around the table. It's not a high table like we sit at with chairs. It's a low table about the height of our coffee tables and they reclined on pillows. They'd lay on their left hip or their left elbow. They'd eat with their right hand, and their feet would be out away from the table. Servants would come in and bring them food, and because of the interesting guests, after they had served, they were allowed to stand up against the wall and listen to the conversation. When I was a kid, I was in such a big family. When we had Thanksgiving dinner, there was no way I was ever going to make it to the adult table. I was on graduated tables that were smaller and smaller and farther and farther away, depending on how young I was. All of a sudden, I got married, and boom, I'm at the (laughs) adult table. I don't know how that works. But most of my childhood, when I finished my Thanksgiving dinner, I'd go stand in the back of the dining room and just listen to the adults talk. It was so interesting. So while they're eating, a woman makes her way into the house which is pretty easy because the servants are coming and going all the time. And she sneaks into the room to find Jesus. She's met him before. She knows him, but she just has to tell him thank you for what he has done in her lives. The interesting thing is she's not a stranger to anybody in the room. She is well known in the city. Everybody recognizes her, but not for the right reason. She is the sinful woman. And she has no right to be in this room. She makes it into the room. She makes it to where Jesus is reclining. Her intention is to take her life savings and pour it on him to anoint him with a very expensive perfume. It's a spikenard ointment imported from india it's in a sealed flask made of glass in which the neck is narrow and if you break the neck you can open it and pour it out but once you've broken the neck the perfume is going to evaporate this was something you'd buy and never use ladies tell me if you have perfume at your house that's just sitting there That you never use. This was so expensive. It really was her life savings. But she didn't care to keep it as an investment for her future. She wanted to take everything she had. Her entire life savings and future. And pour it out as a gift to Jesus. When you do this, you pour it on the person's head. In their culture, it was a gift of honor. It was a gift to say, I love you. I appreciate you. You are the honored one here. She doesn't make it to his head. She only makes it as far as his feet, which are sticking out from the table. And she completely loses it. She bursts into tears. She's not quiet about it. Everybody is looking at her as she's doing this. Everybody is so astonished at what happens that they can't stop her. Have you ever seen something happen where you said, I should do something, but you feel frozen? Because you're so startled at what's really happening. It just takes you a little bit of a while. My wife is not like that at all. She can think clearly. We have been in two fires together, in which I froze. And she says, well, "The first one was a car fire." She says, "Everybody out!" <laughs> we we were all just like watching the fire, and she, and, and she's going like, "Everybody out!" Another time we were in a hotel, and the alarm went off. We're on the top floor. <clears throat> I, I was like, "What? what? It's the middle of the night!" And she says, "Grab the documents." We were in France. Grab the documents. Let's go. But these people are frozen watching what she's doing. They can't stop her. And she falls down as her tears are pouring into the dust on Jesus' feet. And that's where we pick up the story. Luke 7, verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She's made a mess. She's creating mud on his feet. And so she gets down and tries to wipe it up. Now, what does she use to wipe it up? I would think she'd take a piece of her garment or something like that and wipe it up. But somehow in her mind, she's thinking that's not precious enough. And so she takes what's most precious to her, what shows her honor, and she lets down her hair and starts wiping the mess that she's made off With her hair. A woman's hair is her honor. She takes what's precious to her and gives that to Jesus as a gift of honor. She wet his feet with her tears, she kept wiping them with her hair of her head, and now she's kissing his feet, and then she breaks open the vial and pours out that very, very strong perfume. That was so much perfume. It would have permeated the whole house. It would have been such a scent that you would never forget it for the rest of your life. Simon, the host, the Pharisee who is not really interested in Jesus at all, in his mind says to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him. That she is a sinner. And so he writes off Jesus just like that because he doesn't stop her. He says, any righteous man would not let her touch him like this. Jesus is God come in the flesh. and He knows what Simon is thinking. And he says to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Well, Say it, teacher. And he tells him a quick little parable. A certain money lender had two debtors. And frankly, the fact that we owe a debt to God for the sins that we have committed against him is often likened to a debt of money that is so astronomical we could never repay. This money lender has two debtors who owe him money. One is 500 denarii. A denarius is worth one man's daily wage. So that's 500 days of wages. The other owes him only 50. So one owes him 10 times as much as the other. He says when they were unable to repay, he didn't throw them in prison and force his family to come up with the money to get them out. Instead, he graciously forgave them both. Now, by this time in the story, you're going like, that would never happen. (laughs) Moneylenders don't forgive your debts. Moneylenders haul you into jail. But somehow this moneylender took pity on them and forgave them both. When they're unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him the more? This is not a hard question. Which debtor would love the moneylender more? The one who owed him 500 denarii or the one who owed him 50? 500. Simon is scared to answer. <laughs> he has to hedge his bet. He goes like, uh, I suppose, in case he was wrong, I suppose... The one who owed him more. What I think is interesting is, have you ever loved your money lender? <laughs> Probably when you finally paid off the loan, you're willing to kiss your lo- money lender, but not before that. It's a strange thing that he asked, which one would love him the more? Because he's introducing love into the whole idea of what's happening here. He says, Jesus says, you've judged correctly. And then he turns and faces the woman, which would cause everyone in the room to change the direction they're looking and to look where he's looking. And they're all staring at the woman as he says this. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. So here I am with dirty feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. In their culture, the way they greeted each other was to kiss each other on the cheek. The way I greet people in America is I say, nice to meet you. My wife is not from North America. My wife is from Bolivia, South America. She hugs and kisses everyone every time she greets them. She's been working on me the entire 37 years we've been married to learn how to hug properly. Because I hug in a stiff American manner. And I need to practice how to be a Latino who can hug and kiss properly. And I'm always mixed up. Which side of the face am I supposed to kiss? Do I go to the left side? Do I go to the right side? I get mixed up. But he says, you gave me no kiss. But since the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins which are many, have been forgiven. And then listen to this next phrase that matches the story. For she loved much, but he is forgiven little, loves little. Now the meaning of this story is profound because he's saying, what makes her so different from everyone in this room? And why is she doing something that no one else in this room would do? It's because she's been changed and she is grateful and she wants to give back. And she says, well, what could I possibly give him? And she says, I will give him all the honor and respect that I can possibly muster. She doesn't care about anybody else in the room. It's like she has blinders on. She just wants to honor the Lord. She's not even embarrassed. She's not even watching the other people stare at her. She's so focused on the Lord. And the application to Simon is, well, you must have no consciousness whatsoever of your sin. And therefore you love little. Now go back to what we were saying in 1 John regarding loving the world rather than loving God. He says they're mutually exclusive. You can't do both. You have to do one or the other. Why don't I love God more? The answer, I don't appreciate enough what it took for him to forgive my sins. Because I don't think he had to forgive me enough. And I don't think it was that costly. And therefore, there's not enough love in my heart to break open my life savings and pour it out on his feet and kiss his feet and say thank you. How much sin does it take to condemn us before God? He is a righteous God. We have offended him by sinning against him. We have ratified that we were born in sin by committing personal acts of sin, and each of us has a conscience that has convicted us of that sin. Consequently, we cannot have fellowship with a righteous God who created us. We are broken in our relationship, and we are separated from him forever. We could not save ourselves. What we would have thought God would have done is be sorry that he had to punish us, but to let us have our just desert and destroy us along with the devil and his demons. But he did not do that. There was only one way that we could be saved, not by being good enough to merit his favor. The only possible way is that the penalty had to be paid. Now, who could possibly withstand the payment of the penalty, which is death? Because we'd be destroyed if we tried to pay for ourselves, we would die. He didn't want us to spend eternity without him. He set his love upon us. So he asked the second member of the Trinity, his son, to join us as a member of our race, to add to his deity to humanity so that he would be capable of dying and so that he would identify with us as a human being just like us, yet without sin. He lived a perfect life so that he wasn't guilty. And he took our place on the cross and died where we should have died. And all of God's righteous anger towards us and our sin was extinguished in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. What must I do to be saved? There is nothing I can do to be saved. He has offered salvation to me as a gift if I will receive it. What I'm required to do is to believe the gospel, which I just expressed to you in a nutshell. And to stop trusting in myself and my ability to solve my own eternal destiny. And instead cast myself wholly upon him and ask him to forgive my sins. To turn away from the sins I've been committing and to throw myself at the mercy of God. Asking him to forgive us. If we believe that Jesus Christ is God's son, our savior, who died on the cross to pay for our sins and we believe in him. He gives us a gift of eternal life, having forgiven us our sins and gives us relationship with him forever. This woman had met Jesus, had received that forgiveness and just couldn't go on without saying thank you. Verse 47, For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he turned to her in front of everyone who were despising her for her history. He said, Your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And their thought is only God has the right to forgive sins. Unless he is God come in the flesh, which is what the case actually is. And he says to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Faith is belief and trust. In Jesus Christ. It wasn't her works that saved her. It wasn't because she anointed him with perfume that saved her. It was her trust in him for forgiveness that saved her. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Tonight, you yourself. Could receive forgiveness for your sins for all that you've ever done. And you can be given a gift That will last for eternity. A gift of life. Of relationship with God now. Giving us abundant life. And a relationship with Him for eternity. Spending eternity with Him forever and ever. Basking in His love. It's your choice. Will you believe? Will you trust in Jesus Christ? We'd be happy to show you from the Scripture how you can have assurance of your salvation as you trust in Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you as those humbled by the actions of this woman who loved Jesus so much that she showed him so publicly how grateful she was for what he has done in her life. Oh, Father, we pray for those here who need to repent of their sins and to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. We pray through the work of your Spirit that you'd convict them of sin and of righteousness and judgment and that you would help them to believe. For we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.